well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. I am glad you're with us on the program today. We're going to be talking with Holly Sullivan of the Connecticut Citizens Defense League. The Second Circuit heard oral arguments in a case involving the CCDL on Tuesday. What's interesting here is that this is a challenge to the lengthy delays that uh, some Connecticut would-be gun owners are experiencing when they're trying to obtain the license that is necessary to simply keep a farm in their home, much less a bare one in public. Uh, the problem is that this case hasn't even been argued on the merits yet uh, because a district court judge just dismissed the uh, lawsuit, claiming that the CTDL didn't have standing, that the individual plaintiffs, uh, their case had been mooted because, sure enough, after the lawsuit had been filed, but before the court had the chance to uh, hear the arguments, magically, their permits were issued. Yes, we're going to talk about this because this is a real problem, particularly in the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, as uh, Holly will describe. Uh, but hopefully, this case may provide an avenue for relief going forward. We'll get to that in just a second. Before we do, though, we do need to talk about this. Biden's America. It's crushing us. You've got companies laying off tens of thousands of workers, one after the other. Americans working two jobs just to get by. Inflation, pushing hardworking families to the brink. Just look at the price of lunch next time you go to the grocery store. And a digital dollar could be coming to the pipeline to completely destroy our way of life. The truth is, you need a plan. You know it, and I know it. And that's why you should call Gold Co. So you can diversify your savings and investments with gold and silver before things get worse. They're a six-timing 5,000 winner, 2022 Company of the Year, thousands of five-star reviews, and they've helped people like you and me place over $1 billion in gold and silver. They're offering up to $10,000 in free silver while supplies last, and if you call them today, qualified callers will get a free Ronald Reagan half-ounce silver coin. So don't wait. Call Gold Co. at 855-412-3806 today. That's 855-412-3806. Oh six, And now let's kick off our conversation with Holly Sullivan of the Connecticut Citizens Defense League. Perhaps uh, the most important two a case in the Second Circuit that you've never heard of, unless maybe you're a Connecticut gunner, in which case you probably have heard of this case. But outside of Connecticut, I don't think many people are aware of this case, but it could have, again, wide-ranging implications for Second Amendment challenges going forward. Take a look and a listen. Holly, thanks so much for coming on the program. It's great talking with you today. Thank you for having me, as always. Yeah. Um, so this was really interesting. I, I confess, I um, there are so many cases around the country right now that it took me a little bit of time to figure out what exactly was at the the heart of CCDL versus Thody uh, when I sat down to listen to the oral arguments yesterday. And, I, you know, it took me a second because we start hearing talk about due process and standing. And so I, I, I'm listening to the oral arguments and I'm going back and I'm reading some of the case filings. I'm like, oh, wow. This case has never been heard on the merits because the district court judge found a way to exclude all of the plaintiffs, right? Um, and so I, I kind of set this up a little bit in our introduction, but you've got individual plaintiffs and then you've got CCDL as an organization that are filing suit over these, I mean, lengthy doesn't even quite describe it, the delays in issuing a temporary license that you need to apply for a five-year license in Connecticut, right? And some of these individual plaintiffs, well, at least one of them waited, what, three years to get? I mean, that's absurd. Um, And yet, as we've seen in other cases, right, the lawsuit gets filed, all of a sudden, then the licensing authorities say, oh, oh, that's what happened to that application. Oh, here you go. You're approved now. Trying to moot 
the individual plaintiffs, which is where the standing for CCDL comes in, right? Because as an organization, theoretically anyway, you should be able to sue on behalf of your members for their constitutional rights being violated. Um, that can't be mooted, right? Because you're basically arguing not just for these individual plaintiffs, but for all of your potential members. And yet there's some weird stuff going on in the Second Circuit regarding standing, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah, you absolutely nailed it. So long story short, in the state of Connecticut, we have a two-step process to get your permit. Um, first, you apply with your local municipality. And if they're satisfied, they issue you what's called a temporary permit. By state statute, it says that they shall do that within eight weeks. Um, that often doesn't happen, particularly in our largest cities. Um, it absolutely um let's say uh, negatively impacts folks who live in those urban communities. So I think there's a, a socioeconomic impact there that is like you can't even dispute it. Um, in a lot of the uh, more rural towns, that permit is issued sometimes in as quickly as 10 days. So why it takes two and a half years, um, particularly with folks of, of different demographics, um, there's really no good rhyme or reason other than they blame it on the state delays, they blamed it on COVID, they blamed it on staffing issues. Um, but the reality is they exceed those eight weeks regularly. That is the norm, unfortunately, in our largest cities. Um, so we filed a lawsuit in August of 2021, a case with CCDL versus Thody. Um, and you are correct. Um, it was never or, uh, argued on its merits. Um, essentially, the, the individual plaintiffs were all issued their permits, um, but not until we obviously filed the lawsuit and spent quite a lot of money on it. Um, and right now we're up at the Second Circuit appealing that decision. And one of the biggest things that we're discussing is associational standing. So in most of the country, most circuits recognize associational standing. There was a case in, before the Supreme Court in 1975 called Worth, and the Supreme Court recognized associational standing. However, for the last 48 years, the Second Circuit has not. Um, so we're a little bit unique in this. Um, and there's, I think there's only two, possibly three circuits that don't recognize associational standing. So anytime we file a lawsuit right off the from go, the defendants go, well, they don't have standing. So they constantly say, well, CCDL can't file a lawsuit, you don't have standing here. Um, and it goes for all gun rights organizations. Um, if they have members here in the Second Circuit, it's very difficult. Um, why file a case here when you can go elsewhere um, where they do recognize associational standing? However, we live here, so we are gonna try to fix it here. Um, and that's what was largely argued uh, yesterday uh, in the Second Circuit. Yeah, and it did seem, uh, you know, again, it's so hard to tell uh, just from the questions that are asked. At first, I when I was listening to uh, Cameron Atkinson, who was the attorney representing CCDL, I was like, oh, boy, I don't think the judges think that uh, this is a very good case. And then I started listening to the questions that the judges were asking the uh, defendants attorneys. And I was like, oh, well, actually, you know what? Those are just as difficult to question. So I, I had a very difficult time, you know, reading tea leaves uh, just from the questions but it did seem to me that the judges were at least cognizant of the fact that the segment is an outlier when it comes to the issue of standing. Right. There were I think there were at least two judges who noted um, that the Second Circuit is an outlier, which I think is a positive sign. Yep. Um, and, and even when it came to the individual plaintiffs, it, I, I was pleasantly surprised to hear um, one, maybe two of the judges. You were in the courtroom. So tell me yep. if it was two. But they, they there at least seemed to be this willingness to consider that, OK, even if the licenses have been have been issued, there's also a damages claim um, and the issuing of the license may not moot the damages claim 
uh, by these individual plaintiffs that their rights were infringed by having to wait so long for this temporary permit did was that the impression that you got that there was at least some openness to considering the arguments that uh that, that your side's presenting here absolutely i think it was definitely recognized um unfortunately i think covid the timing of covid uh it seems to be that there are there's an argument by the defendants that this is due to COVID, but the reality is this was happening prior to COVID and it's been happening since COVID. Um, so this isn't a corrected issue and it's not just simply due to the COVID pandemic. Um, this is still ongoing. Um, we're still hearing about people that are booking ages out. Um, so I think there there is definitely openness to hearing that there is a valid, um, there was a valid wrong that was done to people. Not, and when I say valid wrong, I mean, it was legitimate. People were legitimately wronged. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, you know, and again, it's interesting because you say that uh, under Connecticut law, these localities have eight weeks before they shall issue or deny a permit. But one of the things that the attorney kept coming back to the attorney for the defendants kept coming back to is, that, well, I mean, this is really open ended. Right. I mean, there there is no real deadline here. What is he talking about, Holly? Isn't that amazing? So literally, yeah. the, literally the attorney um, that was that was representing on behalf of these municipalities said, like, even though Connecticut statute says shall, that doesn't really mean anything. Um, so really, you know, that really gives you a lot of insight as to what the government thinks about their own laws, which brings us whole, back to the whole argument of gun control. They don't even believe that laws or language seems to matter. So it's amazing. It, it, it really, truly is. Um, and again, I mean, to me, that. That gets to you. You if, if if that if that's the argument they want to advance, well, you've got to take this case up on the merits then, because otherwise, uh, you know, how on earth can these laws be challenged? I mean, if if these cases can be mooted by these municipalities granting these licenses after a lawsuit's been filed, CCL's not allowed to challenge on behalf of their members. That's like a, a you know, that's like a, basically a judicial get away with it free card, right? It's not get out of jail free because jail's not an option here, but they are free and clear to abuse everybody's rights up until the point that they get sued and they're about to get hauled into court. And that's that's absolutely that's an absurd standard. It's really hard here in the Second Circuit, and I think that's why you don't see a lot of cases on our issue come forward in the Second Circuit. I mean, there's a lot more friendly areas that, that folks can challenge in, so I think national organizations likely tend to go that direction. Um, the Second Circuit's always been kind of hostile on our issue. Um, that being said, I'm not at all unhappy with the way yesterday went. Um, to your point earlier, I think there was a really balanced, um, the, I, I think the questions presented were really fair uh, to both sides. And ultimately, I think Cameron Atkinson really summed it up perfectly in his final conclusion. Um, the attorney for um, the defense said that the Heller decision, the McDonald decision, don't have anything to do with a carry permit. And what we're arguing about is a carry permit. Well, technically, um, they didn't touch on carry permits. Uh, Cameron Atkinson summed it up perfectly. You can't buy a firearm in this state without those, fi those fingerprints getting done first. You need either an eligibility certificate or you need a permit to carry. That's the only way that you're going to walk into a gun store in our state. So yes, by prohibiting prohibiting us to have that carry permit, you are also prohibiting the purchase of a firearm in your own home, any possession of it. Um, so that's really what we're getting to. And I think that was a very valid and really important point that I don't think the judges had heard otherwise, because we yeah. weren't able to argue it. We never had the opportunity to argue it in the lower court. It just got dismissed. Um, so it's really important that we, we continued on with this case um, and, and, and took it to the next level. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, of course, we don't know when, excuse me, this panel is going to issue its decision. We've seen uh, 
in the Fourth Circuit. It's been almost a year since uh, oral arguments were held in Bianchi versus Brown. That's a challenge to Maryland's uh, ban on so-called assault weapons. So, you know, th- these courts can hold on to these cases for a long time. Um, I hope that that's not the case here. Again, I, I didn't get the sense that the uh, uh, the judges wanted to play any sort of games with this. Hmm. Um but I, I thought it was interesting, too, that the uh, the attorney for the defendants basically argued at one point, you know, judges, you don't really want to get involved in this. Right. You don't want to be the ones to have to decide, well, how long is too long? Uh, when does this become you know, abusive? That's their job. I mean, the Supreme Court said in Bruin that while shall issue licensing systems are presumptively constitutional, that they can be abused, right? They pointed out excessive fees and lengthy wait times um, as examples of how a shall issue system can still violate the constitutional rights of of a state's residents. And and that appears to be the case here. Um, If, again, the state says you shall issue this permit or deny the permit within eight weeks, and you're seeing six months, eight months, 28 months before these uh, decisions are being made, I, I think, again, I, I'm not an attorney, but there's a problem here, uh, yeah. and it's one that is going to continue as long as the courts allow it to continue. And if yeah. the rules are preventing a a constitutional violation from being challenged, then maybe this is the vehicle where this three-judge panel says, all right, you know what? Our, our precedent is wrong. The Supreme Court has recognized associational standing it's time for this body to do so as well. Um, and and hopefully this case does get to proceed and and it, and it is being heard on the merits because that's why, frankly, that's all you're asking for at this point is you just want your fair, you just want your fair day in court. Right. Two years later. Right. It's been two, it's been just over two years. I filed it in August of 2021. So it's been more than two years already. And the average turnaround time for the second circuit court of appeals to issue a decision is 474 days. So we were heard yesterday. Um, so we expect another year and a half or so until we even get word on, on how this went. Um, and, and to that point, you know, even if they don't, it, it, it's like, you know, one of the things that's hard to kind of sometimes explain to gun owners and explain to members, we don't always walk out with like a swooping victory, but if we can fix that associational standing issue, um, we change the landscape of, of, of court cases in the second circuit forever. Um, you know, that allows groups that are doing really good work and it's groups for all different issues, any kind of civil rights issue. It could be this, it could be a second, it, it could be a second amendment issue, it could be a first amendment issue, it could be whatever it is. Um, we change the landscape so that organizations can represent their members. And when led, when litigation is as expensive as it is, that's absolutely necessary. The average working person cannot come in and afford to drop a half a million dollars on a lawsuit. They need the organization organization that they're a member of to come and do that work for them. Um, and I and I think that that's fair and reasonable that we catch up with the rest of the country after 50 years of not being able to do so. Yeah, you know, that's such a great point, too, because I, I, I mentioned earlier, I mean, if the only way to get your permit is to sue <laughs> and the only way to sue is to rack up these legal bills, right, there are going to be, in essence, the state has figured out a, a very easy way for them to deny somebody their right to keep and bear arms. Uh, by just keeping them in limbo. And what are they going to do about it? They're going to sue? Well, they better have deep pockets to do so, uh, or else, you know, they're just going to give up uh, trying to exercise that right. Uh, This is, as you say, this is critically important. And, uh, you know, I I think the merits of this case are important, but also, as you say, the issue of standing, this really would be huge if the panel concludes that, uh, yes, the CCDL does have the right to sue 
uh, on behalf of their members' constitutional rights being violated. Absolutely. And it's hard for us because every single lawsuit that we bring going forward until this is resolved, the defense just simply says, well, they don't have standing. And that's the precedent. So there is an attempt from go to just kick us out. Um, We have to fix it uh, because the reality is, you know, the average person just can't do this by themselves anymore. It's just the the cost of life is just too high. People are focused on feeding their families and putting fuel in their car. Um, Going to court is not reasonable for the average person. Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, I, I, and I don't know if you know the answer to this, but uh, obviously the Bruin decision, right? The the full name of that case was New York State Rifle and Pistol Association at all versus Bruin. How did the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association manage to get standing in that case, given that yeah, this is also a Second Circuit case? Yeah, I'm not entirely sure um, how that played out. And it's something that I, it's been on my my radar, particularly since yesterday's hearing that I want to really dig into, like if that was if that was challenged, mm-hmm. um, maybe it's possible. So in our case, um, and this is usually the, the norm in Connecticut, as soon as we file, whoever that defense is moves. Um, they file a motion with the judge to say we don't have standing. I don't know, and this is me just hypothesizing, if maybe the defense in that case just never moved uh, to kick them out i don't know um but that's always the case in in the players here in connecticut it's kind of yeah. so i don't know it's something it's definitely something that i want to look at um but i don't i'll get back to you on that How about okay that? Like <laughs> yeah. we'll put a pin on it we'll uh we'll we'll t- take that up the uh, next time we talk um yeah. you know listen in the meantime this is not the only lawsuit that uh, ccdl is involved in you are still challenging uh the uh, so-called assaultments ban yeah. in connecticut um, what are some of the other lawsuits that CCDL has uh, in place right now? Yeah, so um, I would, you know, it's really hard because one of the things that the uh, that the defense argued yesterday is that what CCDL does is that we litigate, that that's like why we exist. That couldn't be further from the truth. It's not what we want to be doing, um, and it's not even in our bylaws. Um, we're a legislative action group, so we're there to be educating our members about how to engage with their legislators, how to do these different things, how to get involved in elections, things like that. Um, this is unfortunately a byproduct of us just being like the player in our space that we need to represent these people, and if we can't get it done in the legislature, then we have to take it to the courts but it's not what we want to be doing nor is yeah. it where we want spending the, like a ton of money i actually um, rolled my eyes when i when i heard him make that claim because i'm like i've talked to you about legislative hearings i've talked to you about the alerts that you're sending out to your members about upcoming bills you guys do not just exist to litigate that's absolutely no. absurd no um, no we are definitely not like other organizations that are meant for that that is not our primary purpose and it's not even the foundation of our organization um you know the, our organization was founded on legislative issues and then it wasn't until after sandy hook that we filed our first lawsuit so it's really just a byproduct of the climate changing here um and really we along with the second amendment foundation like we're showing up and doing the work um a lot of the a lot of the other groups haven't filed lawsuits uh, in this area and i would imagine that the state issues in, in the Second Circuit might be a part of that. Um, so I'm really always appreciative appreciative of the Second Amendment Foundation because they're in the fight with us uh, a lot of the time, particularly on the assault weapon uh, case. Yeah. Um, so we also have amicus briefs uh, filed. Um, we have a, a brief filed in Bianchi versus Frosch. We have a, a brief filed in Rahimi. You know, so there's, there's other things that we're doing out there. Um, we are as grassroots as they come. Uh, we literally have like a Utz pretzel bucket with like handles drilled into the side that we pass around at meetings and people put 20 bucks in, 20 bucks in, whatever they can do. Um, so we are not paid staff. We don't have anybody on salary. I'm not paid. It's all volunteer. We're truly as grassroots as it comes. So we're really, really frugal with how we spend our money and that we're doing it uh, for the right reasons and on smart cases. Yeah. 
Yeah. What are you uh, what are you hearing about the upcoming legislative session? Uh, is gun control going to be another big issue for Democrats this year or next year? So I think this past year was kind of their wish list of everything they ever wanted. Um, they definitely got a good amount of it. Um, we have to, without question, if gun owners in the state of Connecticut want to mitigate more gun laws coming through, then we need you like starting in a month to get involved in elections for the fall of 2024. Um, we have to flip our legislature. We have to at least balance our legislature so we have rational people up there. If we can do that, so this coming legislative session is a short session for us. Um, I do expect an ammo tax bill to come up again. I think they're gonna put it in appropriations. Um, it's kind of a group that we maybe don't have as strong relationships with legislators in. Um, so I, I think there's definitely some things on the horizon to expect. Um, and then for the year following, they go back to a long session, which is where they will often do their gun bills. And at that point in time, we need to have changed seats. If we do not do that, this does not end. So people often get excited in legislative session to go testify and to like tell the legislators what they think. Wrong time. You got to get ahead of it a year prior. So if we do our work in 2024, we can we can change it for the 2025 legislative session. You know, one of the things that um, the gun control lobby is pretty good at, uh, in particular, every time for gun safety, they've invested a lot of time and energy in candidate recruitment, uh, uh-huh. candidate training, things of that nature. And again, you talk about the grassroots effort of CCDL. You don't have a deep pocketed billionaire funding you guys. I wish you did, uh, but that, that's not the case. Um, but but it, it, will you be, will you be looking to identify and recruit candidates for legislative races uh, in Connecticut uh, rather than just, you know, sitting back and hoping a good candidate emerges from a Republican primary or a Democratic primary for that matter. A hundred percent. So we have what's called our outreach departments or our outreach group. Um, so our outreach group, um, we actually have, this is kind of a brilliant thing. It's re- it's led by Dr. Walt Cupson. It's one of our, um, one of our executive committee members. We have a town captain in each town in the state of Connecticut. That town captain reports up to a regional manager and that regional manager um, is working with us to strategize like which races we're really going to focus on. Um, we had an open house for our outreach program just a couple weeks ago. The building was packed. Like, um, you know, it was amazing to see the energy. People are, really want to show up and get involved. And what a lot of people get, I think, get afraid of is that they think if I commit to volunteering, it's going to take up all my time. Um, we want to have people, if you can give two Saturdays in the fall to go knock doors, we'll take anything you can give. There is there is no bar too low that we will turn you away um, if you're willing to help us. Um, and I think, you know, when people talk about like, you know, they can pry it from my cold, dead hands. I go like, but then where were you when we needed you? You know, why wait that long? Do we have to really wait that long or can right. we fix it now? Let's fix it now. We can do that. Yeah. Yeah. You Use your uh, warm finger to, uh, you know, ring a doorbell and, and knock on some doors. Right. Absolutely. Uh, listen, ccdl.us, that is the website for the Connecticut Citizens Defense League. I would encourage folks to uh, check it out. Even if you don't live in Connecticut, uh, they're doing a fantastic job of defending your Second Amendment rights uh, there in the Nutmeg State. Holly, thank you so much for everything you do. Uh, thank you for carving out a couple of minutes of a very busy day to talk with us here on Cam and Company. And I'm looking forward to doing this again with you very, very soon. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Holly Sullivan joins us from the Connecticut Citizens Defense League here on Cam and Company. My thanks to Holly for joining us here on the program. And uh, fingers crossed we get a good decision out of the uh, Second Circuit here. This case can actually move forward on the merits in the very near future.
right, now let's turn our attention to today's Armed Citizen story, our good deed of the day, and our recidivist report. We'll start there with a, a case out of Hackensack, New Jersey. Love this. Well, don't really love the headline, but it is informative. Familiar foe nabbed with knife following failed McDonald's bathroom robbery bid, according to the Hackensack police. An ex-con with the proverbial arm's length rap sheet unsuccessfully tried to rob a man at knife point in the bathroom of a Hackensack McDonald's, according to authorities. And uh, yeah, the headline doesn't lie. This really is a proverbial uh, arm length rap sheet here. 30-year-old uh, Shaji Jackson uh, was arrested following this incident where he allegedly uh, accosted a man with a knife in the bathroom of a McDonald's in Hackensack, tried to rob him. The victim refused to hand over money. The assailant fled empty-handed, according to the uh, Hackensack PD. Uh, but they kept caught up with Jackson about two blocks away from the restaurant. He was still carrying the knife when he was taken into custody. He was uh, charged with robbery, making terroristic threats, as well as multiple weapons offenses. Remained uh, behind bars, at least as of Tuesday, in the Bergen County Jail. And as the Daily Voice reports... Jackson has, quote, an extensive criminal record dating back more than a decade, which includes convictions for crimes out of various towns, including Hackensack, East Rutherford, and Lodi, several of which has resulted in um, a little bit of time served in the Bergen County Jail. The uh, Daily Voice notes that the majority of his arrests have been for lesser offenses, including drug possession, shoplifting, criminal mischief, as well as probation violations. Uh, also, turns out he does have a robbery conviction on his record. Uh, that was about a decade ago, out of Hackensack, November of 2012, just six months behind bars for robbery. Uh, Daily Voice says, among the other incidents, a July 2012 arrest for burglary, theft, and criminal mischief that kept him behind bars for a month. Uh, the next month, August 2012, criminal mischief arrest in Lodi a week after his release. That sent him back to the Bergen County Jail for two months. Then in May of 2013, he was arrested on burglary, theft, and drug charges in Hackensack. He spent three weeks behind bars before he was released. A nine-month sentence between September 2014 and uh, June of 2015, after he was arrested in Lodi for drugs, shoplifting, as well as violating his probation. Uh, December of 2015, about six months after he got out of jail, he was arrested on theft, also out of Lodi, and another probation violation. He was in jail only two weeks at that point. March of 2019, arrested once again for theft in Lodi. He was released after just three days. Car burglary, theft, criminal mischief charges, and hack and sack in, in uh, September of 2021. He was released within 24 hours. Uh, shoplifting arrest out of East Rutherford in October of last year. He was released after two days in jail. It's unclear how many of these cases actually went forward to trial or if he was just arrested and then the prosecutor said, ah, you know what, it's not worth it. It's not worth taking these misdemeanor low-level cases to trial. So, you know, catch and release. Kind of sounds like that's what's going on here. Uh, but again, every now and then, more serious crimes. So far, though, not any real serious time behind bars for the prolific offender. Today's Armed Citizen story from Birmingham, Alabama. Now, we don't have a lot of details on this case. It apparently uh, happened uh, late Tuesday night, uh, just before uh, 9 p.m. Uh, but here's what we know as of right now. A shootout erupting between uh, suspected car burglars and a homeowner, uh, even as a Birmingham police officer arrived on the scene. They got a call just before 9 p.m. Tuesday about a car breaking in progress. Um, an officer who was already in the area responded to the call. Officer Truman Fitzgerald with the Birmingham PD says as he's driving down the street on scene, he hears an exchange of gunfire, relays that information to a dispatcher. Dispatcher sent out a max emergency alert indicating that an officer might have been in harm's way. 
The officer saw two male suspects fleeing the scene. He tried to give chase, but he lost sight of the suspects. He then returned to the scene to investigate. According to Officer Fitzgerald, the preliminary investigation revealed a group of suspects were breaking into a car, and they were involved in a shootout with the homeowner, and the officer was right in the middle of it. Police believe the homeowner was the target of the gunfire initially and then returned fire after he was attacked. Uh, nobody was hit or injured in the incident, as far as they can tell. The homeowner was uninjured. Uh, doesn't appear that these suspects suffered any injuries. The officer's vehicle was actually damaged. Uh, as of uh, late Tuesday night, no suspects in custody. Police say they believe the suspect's no longer in the area of the incident and, quote, don't pose a threat to the general public. Although, <clears throat> I don't know how you can say that if uh, they allegedly shot at this homeowner first. But hopefully an arrest is uh, soon made. Right now, it doesn't sound like the uh, homeowner in question is going to be facing any charges because, <clears throat> again, he was firing back at those individuals who were firing at him. Uh, finally today, our good deed of the day, in the right place, at the right time, we're unable to do the right thing. A uh, couple of good Samaritans in Palatka, Florida, Helped to rescue a three-year-old who was wandering down a busy street. I got to tell you, this uh, gave me flashbacks. When I was two years old, we had just moved to Oklahoma City from uh, Massachusetts, maybe like a, a month or two earlier. We had gotten a little dog, and uh, I was in the backyard. My mom was uh, making lunch. We had a, a, a fenced backyard, but apparently I was smart enough to uh, figure out how to unlock the gate, and I did. My little dog and I went wandering. Uh, and we were found about a half mile from my house. We, again, we had just moved there. I was so young. I don't even know if I knew my address. Uh, and we were walking down the middle of what at the time was a four-lane road. Um, and a couple of very nice older ladies <clears throat> stopped. I couldn't tell them what was going on. Um, but they were able to follow my little dog <laughs> back home where I was reunited, where my dog and I were reunited with my mom. Uh, so uh, yeah, this, this, this got me right in the feels when I uh, read this story about these good Samaritans in Palatka, Florida, uh, two guys were driving down St. John's Avenue when they almost ran over this child in the middle of the roadway, according to the Palatka police department. This was at night, unlike my incident where I wandered off in the broad daylight, uh, limited street lights. So apparently it was very difficult to see. Um, but the two men again, uh, did not hit the child. They stopped. Uh, they uh, flagged down a patrol officer saying uh, somebody's baby's in the road, a little small baby in the road, somebody's baby out there. You don't know anybody next door as a small baby. Uh, black police spokesman, Matt Newcomb, said the two men's actions saved the baby's life. He said, luckily, they didn't hit the child, but they were good enough people to stop, pull over, check on the child, and then go door to door to do their own canvas of the neighborhood to try to identify who the child belonged to. They stayed with the child until our officers arrived on scene. It was phenomenal. The uh, man eventually came across the child's dad, who told police that he left the child with his wife and another child while he ran to pick up dinner. When he returned, the front door was open. The boy was nowhere to be found. Parents described this, or the uh, police described it as a teachable moment for parents, uh, with uh, one police spokesman saying, ensure the doors are closed. With little kids like that have a door bolt or a door chain up high that the child can't reach so they can't get out of the house because instead of this becoming a public service announcement, this could have been a story that we lost another child. And that's absolutely right. Uh, when kids, especially when kids get mobile, it's easy to think that, uh, you know, they, they can't get into too much trouble. Uh, yeah, they can. Kids can be pretty inventive. Even uh, doofuses like me can, uh, you know, find the ingenious way of getting out of what was supposed to be a locked backyard. I am glad that uh, this child is okay, reunited with his family. Thanks again to the uh, quick thinking and the fast actions of these Good Samaritans in Palatka, Florida, we thank you, gentlemen, for your very, very good deed.
Now, that is going to do it for this edition of Bearing Arms Cam and Company. I am looking forward to being back with you again tomorrow, however, as we uh, talk about some of the latest Second Amendment news and information, which may include a uh, grotesque and disturbing story from the Washington Post, or rumors that the uh, Post going to be running a story featuring crime scene photos of the uh, child victims in the Uvalde shooting. If that indeed comes to pass... We'll be talking about it here on Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. I hope that the editors of the Washington Post come to their senses if they are indeed planning on running such a story. But uh, I don't have a lot of hope that that will be the case. Uh, But be sure to check out BearingArms.com throughout the day, where we are covering the latest Second Amendment news and information from all across the nation. If you like what you see, I encourage you to become a VIP or VIP Gold member as well. Just go to BearingArms.com slash subscribe. Use the promo code GUNRIGHTS. You can get a significant savings. See you back here tomorrow. Until then, be well, be safe, and be free.